You're listening to a podcast presentation of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. We have been in a series. This is week number 28, which officially is two weeks past six months. Yes. And as we've been going through the book of Acts, the main theme is seeing, you know, basically what happened the first 30 years after Jesus was taken up into heaven and the Holy Spirit was poured out. As we're going through this, it's a different type of, you know, it's not like a letter. We're not reading a letter per se with instruction in it. We're reading more of a narrative history of here's what happened. And as we're going through it, you can wonder, well, how does this apply to me? And I'd like to invite you to approach today, but also as you are listening to the, the, the instructions we, we hear from the book of Acts, as you're hearing things about instructions that are given from New Testament letters, etc., what we're looking to do is to identify patterns or identify principles or ways of living that the early Christians functioned with. Uh, we're asking questions of ourselves like, how did they live? What is the why behind what they're doing? Uh, what does it mean to live in Jesus as you look to put into practice? And, to, you know, the whole thing about getting baptized to be a person who follows after Jesus, it's that you would obey that which you have been taught, that Jesus has said and done. And so when we are reading through the book of Acts, it doesn't necessarily say, you know, Paul was, was sent out on a, and he traveled from one place to another. And so he went by foot everywhere he went. And when he needed to go long distances, he would get on a small boat and the boat would make little hops from port to port to port. And so when you are going into your world, your job is to not take a car. Your job is to walk. And sometimes if you need to travel long distances, look for a boat. Because if it's not in the Bible and they didn't do it, you shouldn't be doing that either. Okay? That'd be like silly. Okay? So what we're looking at is, the principle is Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, among others, are sent out to tell and share the message of the gospel good news. And immediately when you hear that, the first thought might be, so they go and they would stand on street corners and preach. But not really. Where they would, what they would do is they would often look for a place where they were invited to share a message. Because Paul was a a student of a very significant rabbi, he was often given uh, a special encouragement to come and to share something, share a message. You know, he's a guest, he's a guest speaker today. And then they would interact and talk about it, and significant stuff would happen. But often what, it, what goes on is Paul, and I think this is our job too, would look for ways to invite people to reconsider how they see God. This is very poignant for us today in 2024. Inviting people to reconsider how they see God and what they think of God. If you ever get in a conversation with somebody who uh, is talking about God, they will often be, especially in, in a negative way, they would be talking about God. It's like, well, I don't understand how God could, you know, uh, just not intervene and, and just let people die. I don't know how a, a good God, if you think he's so good, why we have war in Ukraine, why we have war in Israel, why we have war in, in, in genocide in Sudan. I don't understand that. And at some point, you hear him talking and say, well, I don't believe in that God either. I don't believe in a God who just kind of watches while people, you know, are downtrodden and crushed and destroyed. But I can tell you what kind of God I do believe in. And that's where we get to share from Scripture and our own words who we see God to be. And that's where 
the majority of what we're doing is bringing a testimony. We're bringing a witness of what we have seen and what we've experienced. Not that we need to be eloquent. Not that we need to, to be polished. I heard one of the most uh, significant fears that people have is public speaking. You don't have to raise your hand right now because you might be afraid of being acknowledged in public. But if that's you, public speaking, you, you, that like freaks you out. Okay? Some of you, okay. Yeah. Dan has both hands up in the back. So I've talked with, I looked around the room, I've talked with most everybody who had their hand up. And I've heard in some way, shape, or form you explaining something about something God's done in your life or something he's doing or something that you've seen. If we can take the pressure off of ourselves to be these polished, very good speakers and just to be ourselves and to share what we've seen God do and invite people to consider looking at it that way, we may find that God will use us as we are. The idea of needing polished speakers anyway is something that came about through the, uh, it, it became really popular with a lot of the oracles and a lot of the, the philosophers who, you know, Socrates, Plato, you know, these guys would stand up and give these long messages and pretty soon Cicero was, was a, a famous person known for, for giving speeches. And the church, after a couple hundred years, started to model their teaching method, which we still kind of do today, after what the world was doing, not necessarily what Jesus had done. It's one of the reasons why we think life groups are so significant and so important. Because it's in, this, it's in the small group where we get to talk about and interact with and navigate through how are we putting this into practice. It's, it would be difficult to do a small group type of an interaction in a group this size. I'm guessing there's about 65 or so of us in this room right now. And all it would take is one person who doesn't know how to self-regulate for, we, we're just kind of sitting here and listening to like dueling banjos, except Louie and somebody else. So a small group is great. But all that to say, we're looking for ways to invite people to reconsider how they see God. Well, according to recent statistics, 75% of Americans don't, are, are the ones who would believe in God, so 25% don't. But it's only if you define God specifically as the God of the Bible. 90% of people in the United States believe that there is a God. 10% are hardcore atheists. Nope, don't believe in that at all. Some are atheists because they're oppositional and they like to be defiant and they're really angry. Okay? Others are like, I've studied, I just don't see it. But 9 out of 10 people believe that there is a God somewhere out there. Some believe they can't know him. Some think he's not interested in them. Others are like, you know, their perception of God sounds an awful lot like Santa Claus. Other times he sounds an awful lot like a, a dictator. Regardless, we get the opportunity, if you think of witnessing and sharing your faith as inviting people to reconsider how they see God. Not in a declarative way, but in an invitation way, goes a long way. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's what we're doing here. So, with that said, let's look at the map. Why? Because I like it. So, we're up here in Philippi, and then today we're going through Apollonia, Amphipolis, and then we end up in Thessalonica, we end up in Berea, and then as Paul gets continually kicked out of places, he ends up on a boat, and he, he is literally on a boat going anywhere, which kind of sounds like a journey song. Just a city boy, born and raised in South Tarsus, yeah. He took a midnight boat going anywhere. 
Anyway, so he ended up on a boat, and he said, I'll send word when I get someplace safe. And eventually he ends up landing in Athens, and he sends word back and says, tell my buddies to come with me. But in the meantime, they're just kind of hanging out. He's hanging out there. <clears throat> so we're going to do something we don't normally do. We always will incorporate scripture into our message. Today we're going to read Acts 17 in its entirety. There's a scripture that says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. And I thought of a million different ways to try to approach this. And I decided to let scripture speak for itself because scripture speaking for itself is like, can you see the greater than sign? Greater than Louis, okay? So we're going to do that. So you want to open up your Bibles, Acts 17. Here we go. It'll also be up here. Dig in. And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Set, they were rabble-rousers, that's what that is. Men of the rabble, and they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the middle of the Areopagus, Mars Hill, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. 
yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Okay. There's lots of different types of writing in the Bible. The first part of the Bible, the first five books, are known as the law, the Torah. And then we have Judges, uh, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Those are the history books of Israel. Then you have the poetry and wisdom books that runs from Job through uh, Song of Solomon, maybe Ecclesiastes. And then you have the, the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets. You know how they, defin- how they defined who was a major prophet? Whoever wrote the most. So it's not like, oh, Habakkuk, you've only got a couple of chapters, you're not as good as Isaiah. It's just Habakkuk's book is small. Obadiah's book is small. Nahum's book is small. Isaiah's book is very long. In the New Testament, we have the gospel accounts, the good news accounts. Then you have Acts, the history of the early church. Then you have the epistles or the letters, which are teachings. And then you have Revelation, which is kind of a throwback to the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel. It's called eschatology, the study of end times. Revelation as a book fits really well with Daniel and Ezekiel because they talk about a lot of the same things. So when you're reading a narrative, one of the things you're looking to do is... Write down what stands out to you. I like to um, use my fingers with a pen and a piece of paper, usually a note, notepad. And I'll write down stuff that stands out to me. And I didn't know this, but there is a study that has been done that says, you will remember more of what you're reading if you're writing it down at the same time. I did not know that, but that has been like my secret sauce for 30 years. And so I can attest, I retain what I'm reading better because I'm writing down the things that stand out to me as I'm going. So that may be for you wondering, how can I remember more scripture? How can I remember what God's talking to me about? Take a pen, take a notepad, one of those ones you can get from the office depot and just make notes on it. Okay. So as you're doing that, what stands out to you? As I'm reading this particular passage in Acts 17, the things that stand out to me are there's a lot of exciting things that are happening. And then they're running for their lives. And then there's a lot of boring things that happen. And in the world that we live in, if we were to stop reading halfway through Acts, where Paul gets chased out of Thessalonica, and he gets chased out of Berea, and he ends up on the boat to anywhere, we start thinking, Paul's kind of a failure. Because people aren't responding to his message. And you can say, no, I wouldn't do that because he's the Apostle Paul. You do it to yourself. You look at your own self and judge yourself as being less than effective because you may have a string of opposition where people don't like you or don't like what you say about Jesus or how you live for Jesus. Let me look at your life and think, when was the last time I had a prayer answer? When was the last time I saw miracles? We see in the book of Acts 20 to 30 years worth of highlights. We know what we don't see? 
a lot of sitting around. You know why? Because people don't want to read about sitting around. Because that's a common experience. It's normal. That's, it's, eh, it's just there. But when the stuff, like when Peter's shadow would come across people and they're healed, they would write about that because that didn't happen every day. When there was a miraculous event that took place, that's what was noted. Don't evaluate your own life as ineffective. If you are each day saying, God, use me. Do what you will with me. And if your days end up being boring, if your days end up being humdrum, if you start to see rhythms and routines showing up, ask God to work in you and to work through you and be available for him to do so. And he'll do it. But don't judge yourself poorly because you have setbacks or because there's periods of boringness. A lot of times, I, I believe our culture feeds off of... Uh, I want to make sure I put this in the... Basically, we feed off of the feelings of passion and fire and excitement. Mountaintop experiences with God. Those are cool. We can think something's wrong when we're in the desert. And yet, in the Bible, when we see the desert as when the time when people are more desperate for and are listening to what God is going to say to them. Most of us here would agree that the, the biblical Moses we hear about being a great man, spoken, who's, he was called a friend of God, had interactions with God in a one-on-one -on -one manner. Fully one-third of his life, you know what he did the high point of the day was? Three sheep tried to get away. Caught them. Okay, Zipporah, his wife, says anything else? Uh, no? One day, I was standing out in the field, and all of a sudden, a bush was burning, but it wasn't burning, and then it started talking to me. It's like, what's happening to my husband? You know, that, we don't know. But it's, it's, it was 40 years of nothing. This is something that we need to pay attention to, because it's in times where we have, it seems like nothing's going on, God is still working in us. He's working through us. He's developing roots. He's developing perseverance. He's developing uh, patience, reliance upon him. One of my favorite books of all time is called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I, tell, I like to tell the stories about when, you're, when you have, like I, I have started using the app Waze, W-A-Z-E, for my directions. And I, like if you're taking a, a, a trip here in town, it will interrupt every aspect of your life. Every two seconds it's saying, now turn right, now prepare to turn left up here, and then go south. And it's like, come on, I'm not Lewis or Clark. I don't know how to do that. But they'll tell you what to do. But if you're going to L.A., pretty soon you get on the road, you get on 395, it says, I'll check back with you in 430 miles. And then she's quiet. There are times when we're on the path God has us going on, and we're not hearing anything. And am I on the wrong path? Wait, wait, am I doing the wrong thing? It's like, no, you're just going. Don't let God's silence be equated with his absence. Remember, what did he say to you last? Hold on to that. One of the things we see when Paul's talking to the church at Berea is, or excuse me, at Thessalonica, he's talking to them. Specifically saying, I want you to know that this Messiah, this Christ that you've been waiting for, is the one whom God promised years ago. And they were like shaken by it. And one of the main reasons that Jews could not accept that Jesus was the Christ or Jesus was the Messiah is that he was crucified and that he was 
killed and put into a tomb. They could not wrap their brain around a Messiah that had to suffer, let alone die. What the Messiah is supposed to do, according to the victorious literature you see in Zechariah, the, the literature you see in David's writings in the Psalms, he's supposed to come and he's supposed to overthrow whatever government is, is in power, the Romans. He's supposed to lead Israel. He's supposed to sit on the throne. It's going to be victorious. It's going to be loud. There's going to be music. It's going to be awesome. And Paul says, all of that is true, but first, he had to come as a Passover lamb to offer himself as a sacrifice so that all who would believe in him could have their sins forgiven. And he's inviting them to reconsider how they engage God and the thought of God. And the Thessalonians, Thessalonians could not do that. Eventually, it's like this guy is a minister to society. And so they did what, the, what we learned about last week in Philippi. If they can't refute what Paul is saying, they go tell the, the Romans. This guy's trying to overthrow Rome, and he's trying to set himself up as another king. That was bad in Rome. If you tried to do that, you would get a lot of attention and none of it good. So by night, and it wasn't because Paul's one of those guys who likes to travel at night, sleep a little in the morning. No, people travel at night in the old days, in, in biblical times, because it was safer for them to get out because nobody would know when they left. So he ends up in, th in Berea, and as he goes to Berea, he goes to the synagogue again. I'm thinking about the kind of perseverance this guy has to have. What can we learn about a guy like Paul or a, an early Christian when they experience persecution? It's like, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to shut up about that anymore. I don't want to talk about that anymore. Look at how people received it. If, if I was supposed to be doing this, people wouldn't be doing that. Over and over again, Paul is persecuted. For us, the kind of persecution we get, people may tell us, we're dumb and tell us to shut up. They don't want to hear from us anymore. Paul, they got a little further than that. They tried to kill him. They used the Jewish law to have him beat five times, the 39 lashes. In one particular city, they took him outside the city and they stoned him. This means they put him in a little depression out, and would have been not quite as big as a, as a, like a hole, not quite a hole, but enough to where he's, he'd be standing up about this high, and then they take as big a rocks as they could, and they throw it at him until he was dead. And then they all go back into the city, and they think, we got rid of him. The brothers and sisters who are in the city come out, and they are checking Paul. They want to give his body a proper burial. And I don't know if Jesus resurrected him from the dead, or if he, did, you know, he was just mostly dead, and he wasn't all dead. Miracle Max stepped in. We don't know. That's Prince's Bride quote, not really saying that that's what happened. But he's, he, was, he was killed, or they thought he was dead. The people who did this were professionals at it. They didn't say, anybody want to try stoning today? We're killing somebody. We just want to, if you ever want to throw a rock at a, at a person who's a heretic, this is your day. No, they brought in the special forces to do this. Okay? So they would have thought for sure he was dead. It says, he shook himself off and, and cleaned himself up, and he went where? Back into the city. What we can learn about the early Christians is they were perseverant. They were obedient rather to Jesus than their circumstances. And simply because people would push back on it, they did not go and try to outshout them or try to yell them down, didn't try to out-argue them. They would go and try to get them to reconsider how they see God and who Jesus is and tell their own stories. At Berea, as he gets there, he goes to the synagogue, and there they at least listened to Paul. And they examine the scriptures. This act says they were more noble. They're willing to, to think about it. 
there's going to be people who you engage with and start talking about God who want to hear nothing. Shut up. I want nothing else. I don't want to hear anything else from you. Then don't. There's going to be other people who's like, you know what? I'd like to hear more. I'd like to hear you talk to me about this. We don't know how long he stayed in Berea. We don't know how long they had the favor there. But at some point, news began to spread. That one guy, Paul, who was in Thessalonica is now in Berea. And the Jews who were upset in Thessalonica said, let's get him. So they all show up there and they start, they were looking for the, for the rabble. And it's actually, it's, it's, rabble is a group of men usually, but it could be men and women who are looking to cause mischief and harm. So rabble rousing is going and looking for the rabble to go do some rousing. So they all come together. It's like, what are we fighting against? What are we, what are we protesting? I don't know, but they're paying us. Let's go. It's trouble. Let's go start it. So the brothers and sisters in Berea see him, and it's like, we got to get Paul out of here because he's kind of the lightning rod. Why? Because he's the main spokesman. doesn't mean he's the most important, but he's the guy that is constantly getting hammered. So they put him on a boat, and they say, we'll figure it out when you get there. He ends up going to Athens, and he's in Athens. He's hanging out, and he's by himself. And he's probably walking the city. I've never been to Greece. Anybody ever been to Greece before? See, Greece is beautiful. It's one of those destination places I would like to go someday. Someday I'd like to go to Greece. But Paul is in Athens. And he's walking around. And it is a religious place. It is full of temples of this and that. Some of the greatest architecture in the world existed at Athens. And still, some of it still remains. One of the cool things is as Paul's walking around there, it says his, his spirit was provoked. It bothered him that there were so many temples and so many idols and so many gods being worshipped, and none of them were worshipping what he knew to be the one true God. He even found something that was bizarre. It's an, it's a, uh, an altar to the unknown God. I did a little digging on that. It's funny because at this particular time, Athens was undergoing a plague. They were experiencing a disease that they didn't know how to stop it. And so they started with their pantheon of gods, and they started making sacrifices to their, this pantheon of gods. And no matter how many times they sacrificed to Zeus and Apollo and, you know, the entire pantheon, they kept getting sick and they kept dying. And somebody, one of the, the city fathers, said, you know what we should do? We're obviously missing a God, and we don't know who it is. So let's just put an altar up there and says, just in case we missed you, God. We don't know who you are, but we want to honor you. So we're going to... Paul, as he's sharing, talking to people, inviting them to, to listen about Jesus and listen about the, the plan of, of salvation and God's heart for him, he decides he's going to talk to them in the language they can understand. And he's going to use something in their culture. Often... Uh, Western Christianity has attempted to eradicate cultures and lay, overlay a culture of their own. It's, it's, it's uh, colonialism. It's, it's imperialism. It's often what was taking place when Great Britain and England were going around the world and they tried to turn the entire world into a bunch of little Englanders. Okay? Christians can do the exact same thing and try to make people all over the world look like us. It's really bizarre when you hear stories about Christians going as missionaries to Africa and they think that one of the most important things they can get them to do is stop wearing African clothes and start wearing suits. Seriously. This is what has happened. That is a missing the boat. Some of you are a little bit closer to home. Any of you came to Jesus in the late 60s, early 70s? Okay. Hippies. These are hippies. Okay. 
these are hippies. What was one of the first things that churches would often do when a hippie showed up and wanted to become a Christian? What did you have to do, John? Cut your hair, hippie. Yes. And wear some shoes for once. And patchouli is not a scent that people enjoy, okay, my friend? It was the exteriors. It was that. By the way, when people romanticize hippies, they just never really knew hippies. That's a a side. You know, you get those whiffs of patchouli, and it's like, it's back. Oh, my goodness. Deliver us, Lord, from this. Um, They want to change the outside. As though somehow if you look like us, then you're really a Christian person. One of the reasons that the Jesus movement happened, why so many people flocked to Southern California, to the Calvary chapels, to the churches on the way, to the vineyard movement, is because they didn't say, if you're going to come in here, you better have your shoes, you better be dressed nice, you better have haircuts. And by the way, leave your drums and basses and guitars at the door. We don't need those. We have God's instrument, the organ, like David played. They allowed them to express themselves to Jesus in that which was not offensive to God. It was culturally the norm. And people were transformed and healed. Those who insist on outward conformity missed out on God doing amazing things. In some ways, that's exactly the story of what happened with the Jews who didn't like the Gentiles coming to Christ and having the same access without circumcision. They wanted outward conformity. You need to look like us so then you can be saved. And Paul's saying that's not what God's interested in. God's interested in our hearts. When Paul would talk to them, the book of Galatians is about circumcision. You think, wow, interesting read. Let's get into it. No, what he's talking about is It's not the act of circumcision that God's interested in. He wants people's hearts and minds set set apart to him so they can hear from him and they can know him. That going through the motions, praising him with their lips, with their hearts are far away, is not what God desires. He wants people's hearts, not just that they look a certain way or they've had a certain procedure as a kid. Paul's talking about the unknown God. And he says... As he's in Mars Hill, he's in this Aeropagus. Imagine a big amphitheater. He's sitting, standing at the bottom, and it goes up for probably 40 or more rows, people sitting around. And he starts talking about the unknown God. Let me tell you who he is. He's Jesus. This is what he's done. And he gets to the spot where he's got people who are in the crowd who follow different schools of philosophy. The Stoics. Anybody ever heard of the Stoics? The Stoics were a group that believed that there was a central governing, unifying principle over all things, seen and unseen. They believed you could find this governing thing within yourself, and that it was imperative that in order to find this, we have to avoid the distractions of the world, including pain, including pleasure, and had to focus on self-discipline and duty. You know what they called this overarching thing that unified everything? The word. Logos. So when John writes in John 1.1, 1, 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He's addressing something we, we, we may never have known. He was addressing a common thought of people are saying, there's something out there that ties everything together. And it's just called the Word. And John says, I know what it is. I know who he is. It's Jesus. Paul's addressing them. Then you have the Epicureans. 
The Epicureans' philosophy was that they should isolate and avoid involvement with the outside world, especially things that were hard. If it was hard, you needed to avoid it. Like, so where's the sign-ups for that? I'd like, you know, it's anything that's not hard, I, I can do that. Um, fear was supposed to be avoided. Death is supposed to be avoided. Uh, judgment is supposed to be avoided. Talking about death is supposed to be avoided. They had a, a, a philosophy that once something is dead, it's dead. When a person dies, that's the end of life. There's a, one of their, uh, I was going to say scriptures, one of their writings has something to say of, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Okay? It's la, 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 live for today. You look at you know, music from the 60s and 70s. You know, it's like one of their prophets or one of their poets had said something. It'd be like Paul getting up and quoting in Seattle around the 90s, quoting. There's a guy, remember when Kurt Cobain said this? You know, throwing things out there where people in the culture are addressing and recognizing their desperate need for God but not knowing how to grab hold of it. And Paul's saying, let me help you consider that maybe God through Jesus is the answer. That's witnessing. Sharing what you know declaring scripture in language that can be understood. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Don't feel like you can't bring scripture and bring the word of God into your everyday life. There is something that happens when the word of God starts to get into you that will be transforming to the way you think, the way you act, the way you do business in life. And like we were talking about earlier, it's not that you take it and just blast people like with a shotgun from the KJV, but you're bringing and rightly dividing it. You're, you're explaining what it means and saying it in a language that you understand. Someone says to you, I just don't feel like God even cares about me. I don't even think that I matter. I think I'm inconsequential. I think my life is a waste. So do you know that God loved you so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die for you? He didn't come to condemn but to save. That's you. That's quoting without quoting, bringing scripture. There was a movement in the late 70s, early 80s that was called the seeker-sensitive movement that really crested in the 90s. And what they tried to do is create church services that people who were not Christians could come to and enjoy themselves with the hope that you can kind of move them along and then, you know, introduce Scripture and stuff later on. What we miss by doing that is that Scripture is what transforms people's lives because it is God's Word. And it's alive and it's active and it's sharper than any sword, any weapon you could find. And it divides even between our soul and our spirit in our bodies, the joints and the marrow, the thoughts and intents of our heart. Not as a weapon, but as an encouragement, as a life-bringing thing. My challenge, my encouragement is speak the truth in love in your own words. Invite people to consider and reconsider who God is. Sometimes they mocked him. Sometimes they persecuted him and abused him. Sometimes they wanted to hear more. Sometimes they said, I want to follow Jesus. The outcome doesn't matter as much as the fact that we're doing this with our lives. What are we doing with this today? Think about what stands out to you. Maybe you took something today. It's like, I know when I'm reading the Bible from now on, I'm going to be reading it with a notepad and a pen. Maybe it's what patterns and what principles do you see about people who are following Christ in the book of Acts? What jumps out at you? How 
Are you thinking about how to engage with others to invite them to reconsider God? What can you do? What makes sense to you? You may be a person who works with your hands. You may be a person who you want to invite somebody to work on a project with you. You, want, you know, you want to work on a project with me? I could bet cookies good. You want somebody who can actually do stuff, fix stuff. You may engage in and be able to kind of work around the fact that you don't really do great standing and, and trying to talk to people. Find your way. Finally, how do I put scripture and principles in my own words? How do I learn how to speak the truth in love? In order to speak it, you have to have it in you first. You only get that by reading, by studying, by talking about it, by listening to it, and it will never come out void. If you're exposed to scripture, it will take root in you, and it will pop up at the most interesting times. Joni was quoting a song today during announcements. She's actually quoting one of the wisdom books, and then she's also quoting Matthew chapter 6. Consider the lilies. Scripture. If you ever, there's a, in the early 80s, there's a guy named Steve Green, and he had a series for kids called Hide Him in Your Heart. Anybody ever heard of that? Yes. You want to study scripture? You want to get scripture stuck in your head? Learn the songs. Well, it's for kids. I can't do that. Actually, I have one word for you. Bluey, okay? Bluey. If you like Bluey, you can still like stuff for kids. When it comes down to it, you can listen to the Steve Green's Hide Him in Your Heart, and you can learn scripture. You think God's going to say, you know what? You cheated. You listened to Steve Green. That was her only, that's, for, that's like eight years old and under. I want you to have something that's harder and hurts more. Think about it. We, 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 why not? If you find resources that help you learn scripture, share them with people. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I thank you for your word that's true and alive. And I ask that you would do a work in us, Lord. Help us to see the patterns and principles of what it means to what it looks like to follow you. I pray that we would be people who put into practice your word and who look to obey it, but are also looking to share what we've been given, to take stuff out of our own backpack that we use and give it to others. If you're here today and you've never started a relationship with Jesus, I want to encourage you to, th to consider who God is, who Jesus is. I want you to consider the fact that Jesus said he came for the express purpose of making a way for you to have a relationship with God. He died on a cross to pay for all the wrongs that you and I would ever do. And that by believing in him, putting our trust in him, our sins will not only be forgiven, but we'll also know and begin to have a way to begin to follow after him every day of our life. And if that's you, I just would invite you to lift your hand saying, that's me. I want to start with Jesus today. Thanks, Lord. If I miss you, wave at me. I don't want to miss you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You can look up. I'm going to pray a blessing over us. And then we're going to, uh, would love to have you, if you're able to stick around for Family Feast, would love to have you do that. It is a Mexican fiesta theme. Uh, you will not be disappointed. Romans chapter 15 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number 6, 22 through 27 says, May Jesus bless you and keep you. May Jesus make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May Jesus turn his face toward you and give you peace. This has been a podcast presentation of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. You can reach us via email at web at hillside4.org. That's W-E-B at hillside, the number four, dot org.